Welcome to Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. Here's your host, Ben Wilson. Hello and welcome to another episode of Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. I'm your host, Ben Wilson, and my co-host Rodney is beside me as usual. And today I've welcomed back to the show my good buddy, Ronnie G., as we talk about Michael Jordan's Last Dance documentary, give our input, and we're going to rank our top teams and top players from the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and beyond to the current players. So, Ronnie, welcome back to the show. What's happening, Big Ben? How's everything going? It's going great. Of course, it's going great when I'm talking to you, and we're talking about one of our favorite things, basketball. And especially, you know, that what we're going to talk about it really has its roots. The conversation's really well rooted in something that you and I love to talking about, and that's you know big time college basketball. And it's funny how so many parallels between the Last Dance and all these players that were in it, and some of our our college basketball favorites through the eighties and nineties. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and get started talking about Michael Jordan's Last Dance. So of course, it was a huge, huge hit on ESPN, and I mean tremendous ratings and. It was premised on the fact that that 98 Bulls team was it was sort of the last dance that going into the season, Bulls management with owner Jerry Reinsdorf and uh, general manager Jerry Krause had announced that Phil Jackson, the successful head coach, would not be returning. And, you know, Jordan was adamant he wanted Phil Jackson to be his coach. And so there was question as to whether Michael Jordan would continue playing after the 98 season. And so really this Bulls team looked at it as this was their last dance with this group of guys, and they were going for a second three-peat to give them six titles total. So it was I thought it was a really great documentary going through that process, but it also went back to kind of how Jordan got his start in basketball. To your point, Ronnie, talking about college basketball and even high school, Michael Jordan, he wasn't this heralded uh, recruit coming in um, to high school. He actually got cut in his sophomore year in high school because he, they didn't think he was tall enough and they didn't think he was good enough. And it motivated him to be this you know, ultra competitive player that he was like, I'm just going to outwork people and I'm going to be the best. And this ultra competitive guy that he became a McDonald's All-American. And then he went to North Carolina and he, you know, as big of a college basketball fan as I was, I didn't really keep up that much with Michael Jordan. I was like six or seven years old, but it's not like back in the day he was like the college dominant star because to me, I thought Patrick Ewing outshined him for a while. I mean, that was a guy that was like with Kentucky. You know, we knew we followed our guys. We followed Charles Barkley, but we knew about Patrick Ewing. We knew about Chris Mullen at St. John's. And so Michael Jordan was a, a really great player, but it's not like he was expected to be this amazing, amazing guy coming into the NBA. I mean, what, what's your early recollections of Jordan as a college player? You know, Hugh and I have had these discussions before about college basketball. And, you know, if you look at the arc uh, or the growth trajectory of professional basketball and its popularity, you know, in the early 80s, professional basketball, the NBA championships, they weren't even – on live TV, they were taped delayed and shown like at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night on like CBS or something. So college basketball was, was the thing up until, you know, that, you know, middle eighties, kind of the same time that, uh, that Jordan entered the league. And to me, growing up in New York, St. John's in the, in the big East, that was, you know, if you were wanted to watch basketball, that's what you were watching. 
the Knicks were the Knicks were really good in the '60s and the '70s, but it was you know it was St. John's in the Big East, and so yeah, we were really well, we were really familiar with um, Patrick Ewing and Georgetown, and a little bit we didn't don't forget back then we didn't have the same media coverage as what we have now, so you got to see Michael Jordan in the you know in the finals of the NCAA's uh, when he was playing at UNC, but growing up where I grew up in New York, we. It was more about, you know, the, the players that were playing in the Big East and the players that were in the ACC and in the SEC. And then when he got drafted, I guess, that's when things started to change and, and he started playing with the Bulls. And even then, we'll get into this more, but it still took it about six or seven years for him to, to win a championship in the NBA. Yeah. You know, it's interesting with Jordan. They said that the best person who could hold Jordan down in scoring was Dean Smith, the legendary coach at University of North Carolina, because North Carolina back in that time, they had a spread offense where if they got the lead, then this is like before they had the shot clock because they didn't start the shot clock until – They'd just milk it. They would just run it out. Yeah, they would just run it out. And so Jordan had you know this tremendous athlete, but the style of play that North Carolina had didn't always – make it that he was scoring 25 points a game. But, you know, he was a great player. I know in 84, he uh, was on All-American. I think he got voted the player of the year in 84 because Ralph Sampson was really the guy who was the dominant player in the ACC in that period of time. And, of course, on those Jordan-North Carolina teams, I mean, he had James Worthy early on who led them to that championship. Of course, Michael hit the game-winning shot against Georgetown in 82 when – was a freshman, but that North Carolina team was loaded with guys like Sam Perkins. They had a young Kenny Smith. Of course, Jordan was a great player on that team. But it's really like they said in the documentary, when he went to the 84 Olympic team coached by Bobby Knight, that's where Bobby Knight said Jordan was by far the best player on the the court. And on that that 84 team, you had some real studs with Georgetown's uh, Patrick Ewing. You had Wayman Tisdale out of Oklahoma. But Jordan was the star and then he gets drafted. And, of course, being a Kentucky guy, I get so sick and tired of hearing the fact, well, hey, Sam Bowie was drafted number two by Portland. And Jordan went three to the Bulls. Of course, uh, Wan went number one to the Houston Rockets. I always have to defend that, and I'm like, you know, no one realized Michael Jordan was going to be this Michael Jordan. And the other thing is the, Bull, the, the Trailblazers had drafted Clyde Drexler the year before, and Clyde – was a tremendous player, same size, same position as Jordan. And the Trailblazers really needed a big guy because they were in the same division as the Lakers who had Kareem and a bunch of other good guys. So, But let me tell you, when Jordan got uh, drafted, he went off. I mean, he – Well, you said it's pretty interesting because, you know, he got cut when he was a sophomore trying out for the varsity in high school. He worked his tail off, you know, to become, like you said, a McDonald's All-American and, and goes to UNC – and I believe that if I saw a documentary on him or on Dean Smith, Dean Smith, I believe, told him, you know, to, to leave school and go to the NBA or something like that. And then when he went to, to go play at the Olympics, like you just said, Bobby Knight said he's just the best player ever, you know. And then when he got to the Bulls, you know, in the documentary, The Last Dance, they, they clearly said, you know, within two weeks of him playing at, with the Bulls, the, the entire Bulls organization knew that he was the best player anybody had ever seen. Right. Yeah, I mean, they were saying that he just came in and was dominating the practice, which part of it, you know, Jordan's w- legendary work ethic. I mean, if, if you take one thing away from this documentary, you you know that Michael Jordan is a tireless worker. He said he had a competition problem. 
when they were saying, hey, do you have a gambling problem? He's like, no, I have a competition problem. He wants to win everything at all costs, whether it's basketball, golf, playing cards. I mean, just an ultra competitive guy. And I think when he went to the Bulls, you know, he brought this level of competition and success that really a lot of guys on that team were just kind of going through the motions because the Bulls were not good at that time. Well, what's interesting is that he was ultra, ultra, ultra competitive. And when you look at the best players, and not only was he ultra competitive, but his attention to detail, you know, and you look at the players in all sports, whether it's baseball or football, or like look at Tom Brady. Tom Brady is one of the most competitive players anybody's ever played with. And he knows every single assignment on every single play of every single player, you know, and that's why he's so good. And you can draw the same thing with, you know, probably the top five players in every single sport. The thing that makes them so good is their competitiveness, you know, and that's, uh, that that to me, you can't measure that. You can't measure that with a forty yard dash. Can't measure that with a vertical jump. Can't measure that with how fast you run a forty yard dash, or you know how many shots you can make from the free throw line consecutively. You, you, that just can't be measured. So, what was your take? Um, you know, growing up in New York, the marketing mecca of the the country, when the Air Jordan shoe came out, and Michael Jordan just kind of you know this new guy signing with Nike, but the the, the Air Jordan shoe started off a dynasty and what was it like seeing that in new york well we at the time adidas was a huge brand in new york not only at that time but it still is and now i think adidas is actually taking over sneaker sales is the number one selling sneaker in america but you know when we started to see that come out and people started to wear them because jordan was jordan you know not only were people on the playground or in games in high school or at the playground trying to imitate him with the tongue out and, and just his, his mannerisms. But then they were going out and they were buying the sneaker. So you de- it definitely created that rift. You know, right about that time, like late 80s, early 90s, that's when you started to see that shift between just everybody was wearing Adidas and then all of a sudden, you know, a lot more people started to wear Nikes. And you kind of knew right then that there was a, a generation shift right there, right there. Boom. Okay. You, you, you were this age at this time if you're wearing Nikes, you know? Yeah. Well, I think the other thing with Jordan, I mean, when he came into the league, you know, the big stars were Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, who, you know, you still had Kareem as a as a top player at that point. Dr. J was at t- toward the end of his career. But, you know, growing up, when I was watching those teams, it was like, you know, I love those Dr. J teams in the 76ers that had Moses Malone and Dr. J and Andrew Tony, and they won the 83. 80- three championship over the Lakers. Of course, you had the Lakers with uh, Magic Johnson, Kareem, Byron Scott, James Worthy, and of course, the Boston Celtics with Larry Bird, McHale, and Parrish. And, you know, you had the Pistons. But Michael brought this this newness because he was just so athletic that, I mean, you didn't see Larry Bird doing these dunks and Magic Johnson. Nobody was really doing these kind of dunks and the explosiveness from a guard. It was still very much a big man's game when he came in. Well, he definitely changed the game. The same way that, you know, you had Kareem had the skyhook, right? And, and Magic had his moves, you know, that changed the way that people played. I don't think that anybody changed the game more than what Jordan changed the game. Yeah, I'd agree. And if you look at his stats, too, I mean, his rookie year, he played all 82 games. He averaged 28 points a game. He shot 85% from the line. He was a 50 
one percent field goal percentage shooter but i mean he was a stat sheet stuffer he had six and a half rebounds a game he had six assists a game he had two and a half blocks a game i mean he was you know just this well-rounded player and then when he started with the shoes i mean they were saying on the documentary that you know when michael was wearing the air jordans the nba hadn't approved that shoe because they had their deal with um I think Converse as well. So he was wearing this unique shoe and getting fined every game for it. So he got fined like $400,000 his first year, which was like about two, uh, almost two thirds of his salary. Cause he got paid 750,000 and Nike picked up the tab just from the marketing, but it was like this, this new shift. But like you said, he didn't really start winning until he got some balance on that team with guys like Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant coming on and, and really making it a, an overall team effort. So, so talk about your thoughts on this documentary when it talks about you know the championship level caliber of the Bulls. Man, let me tell you something. So, uh, first of all, I love documentaries. You know my background. I'm you know I'm in the banking business, and past couple of years I got to the TV production business and and everything. So I'm a real student of documentaries because I think that that's really it, it, when you're learning how to make videos, whether it's, you know, a 60 second Instagram video, or you're doing a a three minute short or whatever, documentaries are a really good way to learn the basics of filmmaking. So from that aspect, I really enjoyed watching it and seeing how they broke down and how they wove all the stories together. And I love the fact that, you know, with all 10 episodes, they tried to have each episode with a individual theme. Now, Jordan completely dominated the entire series because without Jordan, there were no Bulls and they wouldn't even had the last dance, let alone, you know, they would have had the first dance, let alone the last dance. But I think it's probably top 10 sports documentary of all time. Might even be, you know, top five. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, though, is just a chronology of how the Bulls evolved, because if you're looking at Jordan's stats, like I said, as a rookie, he came in at 28 points a game. He got injured. His second year uh, had that broken foot but and averaged 22 points a game. But even so, I thought it was, you know, just to show his competitiveness, the Bulls were wanting him to, to sit out those games. They wanted to tank and make the lottery. And, you know, he refused. He was like, I want to play. And so they made the playoffs. It was important for him to make the playoffs. And that 86 year was the year that they played Larry Bird and the Celtics in the first round. And that's when he put 63 on the Celtics at Boston and Larry Bird was like, you know, this guy was the best player on the floor. And that's when he kind of became even more elevated. And then the next year he averaged 37 points a game next year, 35 points a game, got his first MVP in 88. But I thought the thing that was important is when they brought in Doug Collins, they had to tell Jordan, look, you've got, you can't win a championship in at this level just by yourself. You have to have, teammates involved and balance and so they, in 88 they had added Scottie Pippen as a rookie and and Horace Grant and they had to go through some growing pains but you know once those guys evolved Jordan's scoring numbers went down a couple of points a game he was still averaging 32 33 points a game but in the ultimate team sport you have to play as a team you can't play as a an individual it's golf and it's not tennis I mean you've got to you've got to be able to dish off to your teammates and you know, the, the give and go and, you know, how could you run the triangle offense if you if you just want to control the ball the entire time when you're on offense, right? Yeah. So, well, let me ask you this, you know, since you're in film and storytelling, 
one of the important things of a great story is not just the hero, but the villain. And no one played the villain more in this documentary than Isaiah Thomas and the Bad Boy Pistons. So talk about your thoughts on on Isaiah Thomas and those Bad Boy Pistons as Jordan had to climb uh, to the top. You know, I think that Jordan saw, well, not even Jordan, but the entire Bulls team, you know, they saw that the Pistons were their roadblock. They, I don't think that they were really looking at the Lakers or looking at the Celtics. They were looking more so at the at the Pistons. And maybe because they were, you know, from a proximity standpoint, that was the, the closest team to them. And then it was their style of play. You know, they were the bad boys, you know. And then when they when they lost, when they finally lost, and the, and the Bulls won that series, and the Pistons didn't even shake hands and they walked off with time still left on the clock. I mean, that was kind of like this signal of, okay, the Pistons are done. Now it's the Bulls' turn to go out and be the champs. Yeah. It's interesting about that because, you know, in the 80s, you had kind of the, the passing of the torch from, you know, the Celtics were the team in the, the 80s through about 86, 87. And then you know, Bird ha- had some, some injuries and stuff. But really, 89 was when the Pistons finally broke through because they had always been challenging the Celtics and, and couldn't get through. And so they finally got through and they won that title. I'm sorry, they won it in 88. So they, they lost to the Lakers in the finals. In 89, they got through, beat the Celtics again, then beat the Lakers to get the first championship for the Pistons. And then in 90, they, they won again. And But, you know, Isaiah had to go through that process just like Jordan did. And so Jordan had to go through Boston. Then he had to go through – the Pistons and the Pistons kept beating them. But I, I feel like the Pistons get a raw deal in this. I feel like they're one of the most disrespected championship level teams ever because, you know, a lot of people don't like their physical style. Well, wait a second. But they were renegades. They were like the Pirates, you know, or or the Raiders, you know. They they were just so different from the way that most other teams were playing the sport. And they relished that reputation, right? I mean, they, they embraced it and they – they even, you know, you watch their documentary and they, they were they were calling themselves the bad boys. They bought into all the hype. And, and what's funny is seeing the, again, how stories come full circle. You know, Rodman was there. And then, you know, what happens? After the torch gets passed and now the Bulls, are, then Rodman ends up on the Bulls. So I think that that is the ultimate, you know, full circle, how everything just, you know, what's, what's old is new and what's new is old. Well, and I, I think with the Pistons, the reason why I feel like they got a raw deal as well, hey, in those 80s NBAs and even in the, the early 90s, it was just a more physical brand of basketball. I mean, the rules allowed you to hand-check people. It was kind of like, hey, if you're a big guy, especially a center or power forward, you're not letting some guard come in and, and dunk on you or have a layup. I mean, you're knocking that guy to the ground. I mean, I mean, I even remember when I played basketball, it was like, hey, you know, if someone comes in, you're knocking that person to the ground. That's just the way it was. And so, yeah, they were physical, but, hey, they called a foul. They called technicals. And that's the thing. I've, I always felt Jordan was a, a, a crybaby for that. And I liked the fact that Bill Lambeer, they interviewed him after the Pistons episode, and he said, look, they're a bunch of whiners. They're crybabies. And, you know, that's that's something why I was not a huge Jordan fan because I love those Piston teams. And I'm like, you know, Jordan is great, and he's a great shooter and stuff, but he cries and complains. And finally, what I liked about Jordan is he said, you know what? I am not going to let the Pistons just 
bully me around anymore. So he started lifting weights and got stronger. He was dishing it out. That and the and the I remember they covered that. You know, it was interesting because on one of the interviews in the documentary that they had with Isaiah Thomas, he even said that the NBA kind of they coronated the Bulls and skipped over the Pistons. You know, went from the Celtics and the Lakers. And they wanted to go from the Lakers to the Celtics to the Bulls, but they never wanted to pay any attention to the Pistons. And, and when the Pistons, you know, beat them in the series, they kind of had that chip on their shoulder to say, hey, NBA was trying to do everything to make sure that the Bulls were going to win the series. And the Pistons ended up winning that. And I think it was the next year that the Bulls ended up beating them uh, and, and finally, you know, overcoming that, uh, that hurdle. I agree with that. I think it's right because, I mean, at the end of the day, at that period of 88, 89, 90, Jordan was the most marketable star in the NBA. You know, you still had Magic Johnson there. You still had Larry Bird, which, you know, people were loving those guys. But they didn't have the commercials and the endorsements like Jordan did. I mean, every kid that I knew growing up, other than me, I, I wore my Larry Bird black Converse shoes. But a lot of people, they had their Air Jordan shoes. They were Bulls fans. You know, where I grew up in Kentucky, we had WGN, so we were watching Bulls games on on TV. Do you think that Isaiah Thomas maybe also had a chip on his shoulder because Coach Knight, you know, after coaching in the Olympics, had said, had given so much praise to Jordan when Isaiah was supposed to be, you know, Coach Knight's, uh, you know, golden disciple? Well, I think he could have, but I thought the documentary made a really good point, and I forgot who said it, but somebody, and I forgot, yeah, I can't remember who said it, but somebody made the statement that the rift really between Isaiah Thomas and Jordan was the fact that Isaiah was a Chicago kid, and then Jordan comes in, you know, this rookie year and gets all this stardom and glamour and stuff, and he's the talk of the town in Chicago. Well, Isaiah still lived in Chicago. Uh, John Sally said that, I think. But so Isaiah lived in Chicago and he'd come back in the offseason. All these people, when they were talking about Isaiah being the greatest player in Chicago, they're talking about Jordan. And, you know, Isaiah is no saint, but he's very competitive too, just like Magic Johnson was and Jordan and all these guys. And so he didn't like that. And so that was kind of a rift. He's like, well, I'm going to show this guy, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to let him uh, get over me. And it was interesting because when Jordan was a rookie and made the all-star team, they talk about the fact that a lot of the veteran guys, which Isaiah kind of let it, were like, hey, we're going to kind of blackball this rookie, not really passing the ball and, and stuff, because they didn't want this new guy coming in, taking their territory. But I always felt with those Piston teams, it's like, hey, everyone says they were dirty and stuff. And they they played they played dirty on things. But at the end of the day, you know what? Jordan had to – to face the bully. A lot of times people have to face the bully in, in life and he got stronger and he took it to the Pistons and, and they won. And did the Pistons handle it the wrong way, walking off, not shaking hands? Well, according to Bill Lambeer, he said, well, Hey, when um, Boston lost to the Pistons, that's what they did. And, or no, Isaiah said it. And you know, that they, they wouldn't have sh- shook hands with any of the Pistons, except the fact that Isaiah went up to Kevin McHale but that's kind of how it was. And so they were like, you know, screw it. This is how what happened to us when we went down, and we're going to do the same. And a guy like Bill Ambeer, he doesn't really care what anybody thinks. No. But, but don't you think that a lot of the teams played 
they were a little bit extra chippy when they played the, the, the Pistons because they were the Pistons, which then, of course, Pistons weren't going to just sit there and take it. So they got just as defensive and just as aggressive with their elbows and their hand checks and, you know, boxing out maybe a little bit extra hard and, and playing, you know, getting in the paint and, you know, getting much more aggressive against other teams, you know? Yeah. Well, it's like Bill Beer said. If you look at that Pistons roster, other than really Isaiah Thomas and maybe Rodman, I mean, they didn't have the most athletic team out there. I mean, Bill Ambeer was a 6'11 center, but he wasn't a big jumper or vertical guy, so they had to play to their strengths. And it was like, hey, Jordan's going up for these shots. Well, if he's in the air, we're already beat, so you've got to hold him down and knock him around, do what you can before he gets in the air. So that's just part of competition, and that's why I, I go back to the statement, as great as Michael Jordan is, I always think of Michael Jordan as a complainer on the basketball court. But you know what? A lot of people complain. But at the end of the day, he was able to slay the dragon and move on. And finally, they got to those titles. But before we leave Isaiah Thomas, I want to ask you this. You know, a, a large portion of this documentary focused on the fact that Isaiah Thomas was omitted from the 1992 Dream Team that went to the Olympics. And just as a reminder of who that roster was, you know, you had Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, John Stockton. Well, let me just go by position. So starting at the, the point guard, you had Magic Johnson and John Stockton. The shooting guards were Michael Jordan and Clyde Drexler. The small forwards were um, Larry Bird, Chris Mullen, and Charles Barkley. The power forwards were, um, well, I guess Barkley would be a power forward, but they had Carl Malone. Then they had uh, the centers, David Robinson and Patrick Ewing. They had Christian Leitner as the representative for the college team. And, of course, they had Scottie Pippen as just an overall glue guy. Now, me, looking at this roster, other than Christian Leitner, I don't see a problem with any of those guys being on that roster because if you look at the, the players at that time, they were tremendous, and you've got to have a good, balanced team. But a lot of people have really pushed the fact that Isaiah should have been on that team. He was like a legendary guy. But, of course, a lot of people want to point the finger to Jordan and say he wasn't on that team because Michael Jordan didn't want him on the team. And on the documentary, Jordan said that when Rod Thorne called him, he he said, who's on the team? And Rod says, you know, what do you mean? And Jordan says, who's on the team? And then Rod Thorne replies, who is an executive with the NBA, but a former GM of the Bulls who drafted Jordan, Said, well, the guy that you are thinking of isn't on that team. And so Jordan took the position that it was kind of known that he didn't like Isaiah Thomas, but that he didn't say anything about Isaiah Thomas definitely not being – if Isaiah Thomas is on that team, he's not playing. But yet it came out this week that he said in an interview to a reporter that he was adamant that if Isaiah Thomas was on that team, he wasn't playing. But then – it's interesting if you talk to guys like David Robinson and other guys on the team, nobody really liked Isaiah Thomas. So what's your take on all this? Was Isaiah Thomas robbed? Yeah. I mean, don't you think? But, I mean, put it this way. You went down the roster of that team, right? Every single player in that roster deserved to be there. And probably Christian Leitner did because he came off of such a, an amazing career in, the, you know, in, in, in college. Well, I hate Christian Leitner, so I want to put the blame on him for this. <laughs> so, but when you look at uh, – name the top 10 players in the NBA from 1980 until present. So the past 40 years, let's call it, right? Is uh, Are you going to put Isaiah Thomas on that list? 
See, I don't think Isaiah Thomas really, I mean, if you're looking just pure merit, he wasn't, unless you take Leitner off the roster, I don't pick him over John Stockton at that point of his career. If this was a 1988 Olympic team that they were picking, then yes, I would put Isaiah over Stockton. But ultimately, and they said in the interview that Chuck Daly, the coach of the Pistons, didn't even want Isaiah, which, you know, I don't know if that's true. I never heard Chuck Daly say that. Chuck Daly may have also been saying that for a couple of reasons. Number one, Isaiah was coming off of a, a wrist injury that year. So being the fact that he's on his team, you may prefer for Isaiah to be completely healthy. But the fact that Isaiah had beef with Jordan and Magic and Larry Bird, I mean, three of the probably the most important guys there is like David Robinson was saying, there was nobody standing up for Isaiah Thomas saying, Isaiah needs to be on this team or I'm not playing or this is a, a, a travesty that Isaiah's not on that team. And to Jordan's point, which the only reason why I'm upset with Jordan about that is not that he had the rift. It's just that he lied about it. That appears to be the case. And I'm like, you know what? Don't lie about it. People knew you didn't like Isaiah Thomas. Just say it. No one would think differently of Jordan. I, I know I wouldn't. I can't. How do I put this the right way without sounding like a jerk? Of You know, I know a handful of professional athletes. Know them very well, right? Some of them I grew up with, and they had really great careers in the uh, in Major League Baseball and in the NFL. And they, they're all pretty much good guys. Mm-hmm. Isaiah Thomas, there's something about his personality and the way that he carries himself that it's almost – It's very off-putting, you know? I can see that. And I've never seen anybody that's played with him or done business with him that stands up and says, oh, Isaiah is the greatest guy ever, you know? You just don't hear people say that the way that people say that about about other people, about other very, very famous athletes. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's why I don't have a huge problem with Isaiah Thomas not being on the Dream Team. Because number one, I just, you know, regardless of what Isaiah may think, I just don't think that he was, I wouldn't take him over John Stockton. I just wouldn't. And I think at the end of the day, and we'll get into this, when you're picking a team, chemistry is very, very important. And here, this group of guys, you know, going over to play in the Olympics, you've got a bunch of alpha guys there anyway that are always the dog on their team. So a guy like Stockton and Magic Johnson and even Pippen, really, they're so important because I don't think, well, Pippen may care about scoring a little bit more, but, you know, John Stockton and Magic, they're perfectly content getting their assists, and you've got to have some chemistry like that. And if you've got bad blood going over to Barcelona, Spain to play, that's not good. And that was a very important Olympics for us to win because, you know, we didn't win in 1988, and so that was an embarrassment to the country from a a sport perspective. But wasn't that also – when was the first time that they allowed professionals to go and play in the Olympics? It was 92 because that they had college players, which David Robinson was one of those guys on the team. I can't remember if Pippen was on that team. But at the end of the day, the USA basketball is like, well, we're, we're just not going to accept not winning the, the Olympics. And if all these other countries are playing with professional guys, then we're going to send our professional guys too. A hundred percent. So – all right. Anyway, I just thought that'd be that was such an important part of the documentary. So, so let's talk about these Bulls teams in the '90s, because you know, you being a New York guy, their big rival in the '90s was 
the the New York Knicks those teams with Patrick Ewing, Charles Oakley, the former Bull who was traded for Bill Cartwright. Talk about those battles. Man, that is speaking from my own viewpoint, right? Looking out from inside of my brain, through my eyes, and, and how I see this. Jordan came in the league 83-84, and at that time, I was a teenager. I was playing football mostly and baseball, and then I went to college. I graduated high school 89. I'm dating myself here, putting it out in public, right? 48, I look 38, and I live life here in South Beach like I'm 28. But and I went to St. John's, which was part of the Big East, and I played football at St. John's, and it was – to me, I didn't really pay attention to basketball during the 80s unless it was the Big East and St. John's, right? And that's how, you know, that, that's like I said before, that, that's how we really were so familiar with the, you know, the Georgetown team. And that's even how we kind of knew about Michael Jordan in college. But we really didn't pay that much attention to, to it in professionals. It wasn't until the 90s when – the Ewing-led Knicks started to really become a force, and they had Mark Jackson, and they had, you know, like you said, Charles Oakley. They actually had the quarterback from Florida State, Charlie Ward, as well, which is pretty phenomenal. Heisman Trophy winner, you know, in, in college, uh, playing quarterback at Florida State. He ends up playing point guard for the Knicks. So it was then that we really, really, really started to pay attention to, to Jordan. Because think about it. By then, you know, he had the Nike deal. They had already been in the playoffs a couple of times. You know, things were – he was at the at the height of everything that was going on. So it was probably like early 90, 91, 92. That's when we really started to pay attention to everything that was going on from from, from my own standpoint and New Yorkers. Because it was every, – every time that, that the Knicks played the Bulls at the Garden – it was rocking. The bars outside, the bars, you know, right outside on 34th Street. Everything was packed. It was an event, you know? Yeah. Well, of course, in, in New York at that time, that's when Pat Riley became their head coach. And so, because really, if you think about the Knicks in the, the mid-80s when Ewing got there, first off, the Knicks getting Ewing was huge. I mean, at the time he was drafted in 85, he was the first lottery pick. And, you know, this stud coming out of Georgetown. And Ewing always put up good numbers, you know, 20 points a game, 10 rebounds. But he was kind of like Jordan in that he didn't have a whole lot of help around him. And as much as I love Kenny Skywalker from University of Kentucky, Kenny didn't turn out to be a great NBA player because he was a 68 guy who was a post guy. He wasn't a jump shot guy. So they made this trade from – they had Bill Cartwright there. They're like Trent Tucker and Gerald Wilkins, the – brother of Dominique. But, you know, the Knicks were always a team. If they made the playoffs, they were kind of like a, a lower seed. But it wasn't until they got Charles Oakley and then they had um, uh, Riley come in and, you know, they brought in guys like Xavier McDaniel and Derek Harper and stuff. And they became, well, Mark Jackson was there for a while, but they became this dominant team. But, I mean, those Knicks-Bulls series, especially in the early 90s, they were tough, physical and going back to that brand of basketball that the Pistons played, those Knicks teams were brutal too. They had Anthony Mason down there. I mean, Anthony Mason was a brute. And I still feel like that it was one of those things as a Bulls fan or as a Bulls, uh, at, I guess, a Jordan admirer. Jordan took the contact and he still dished it out. I mean, he would dunk over Ewing and dunk over Oakley. I mean, John Starks would try to guard him. And, you know, that was a, that was a tough matchup for Starks. Hundred percent. It was yeah. I forgot. I forgot to mention John Starks. It was so many good 
battles during the regular season and the postseason, it, it really helped catapult the sport back into New York. Because don't forget, when the sport really started to gain so much popularity in the mid-80s through the early 90s, it was L.A., Boston, Detroit, Chicago. It wasn't happening in New York. You know, the only time that the Guardian would really get packed is when they were playing, you know, they played the Celtics every, you know, every Christmas day. The Garden would be packed. It's when those teams came to play, that's when the Garden would be packed. Outside of that, you know, you buy a ticket back then for, you know, $5, $7 and go watch the next play. I kind of felt bad for John Starks in a way, though, because I always liked John Starks. I mean, he wasn't obviously as talented of a player as Jordan, but I just felt like with – because I was rooting for those Knicks teams. I always liked Patrick Ewing. And I felt like starting with that series, and once Jordan got his first title and stuff, and he, you know, they got the first title in '91 by beating Magic and the Lakers. At that point, Jordan was the guy in the NBA, and I just kind of felt like that, you know, if you breathe on Jordan too hard, it was a foul. And yet, Jordan was a really good defensive player, and he'd be all over Starks, or they'd let, you know, they'd whip on Ewing pretty bad, and he wouldn't always get the call. So. None of the big stars, in my opinion, ever got the same treatment that Jordan did. Ewing never got that. Alonzo Mourning never got that. You know, even going modern, I still don't think LeBron gets the calls that Jordan would get back in the day. But I'll say this for Jordan. At the end of the day, he hit the shots. I mean, you know, it's one thing to, hey, get calls, but are you making the shots? Are you making the plays? And he makes the plays. I mean, he was still shooting in the early 90s, like 52% from the field as a um, as a shooting guard. So that's that's pretty impressive. That's, a, that's impressive. Hey, what would you think um, of Scottie Pippen about how he was portrayed in the documentary? Well, that's what I was getting ready to ask you because I, I want to talk about Pippen and Grant in this because – those guys were critically important. I mean, you know, they the reason why Charles Oakley got traded from the Bulls for Bill Cartwright is because they had faith in Horace Grant. And they really didn't have a good center. They just needed someone who was serviceable. I felt that Scotty was portrayed badly in the documentary. And I felt that if I was doing this documentary, the years that Jordan was away playing minor league baseball – why was it relevant to bring up the fact that that Scottie Pippen refused to go out in that play in against the Knicks? You know, Jordan wasn't even on that team. I thought it put Scottie in a bad light when it the the focus really should have been on Jordan more. So I, I really didn't like that. I'm not that I'm a huge Scottie Pippen fan, but I just I don't think that's right. And another problem that I really had with this thing is that Jordan like it or not, and you know, some commentators have used this word, and I think it's appropriate, he was a snitch in this documentary to a lot of his teammates. He talked about the fact that when he was a rookie, he walked into a hotel room, and a lot of the guys were in there smoking dope or doing drugs. I'm like, you know what? Why are you saying that? I mean, maybe some guy you know, has changed his ways, and he's with his family, but yet his wife and kids know that he played – with the Bulls in that time. So now he's having to answer these kind of questions or the fact about Horace Grant where Jordan just flat said that Horace was a snitch to this reporter, Sam Smith for a book about what was going on in the Bulls locker room. And Horace Grant has vehemently denied that vehemently. Yep. So I have a problem letting stuff leave the locker room. And second, if he does, if Jordan doesn't know if it's true, about Horace Grant, why are you saying something like that? Because the next time they honor this Bulls team, 
that's going to be kind of an awkward moment, I would think. Yeah. Well, it's like I said too. You know, like I, I love this. I love this structure of the documentary. There were so many things about it that I liked, but it was more an homage to Michael Jordan than it was that I feel it was a story about one of the most prolific sports franchises. You know, maybe only second or third to the New England Patriots and maybe the Lakers of like the fifties and the early sixties. You know, and when I feel Right. What I feel, and, and this, listen, you and I, outside of being really huge sports fans and being, you know, guys from up north, you know, two gringos that, from up north that ended up down here in southeast Florida, you know, the capital of Latin America. And we, you know, whenever you and I are together, we stick out like sore thumbs because we're, we're typically the only two, you know, Anglos in any crowd that we're in. But outside of that, you know, you and I, we're business guys. We're business people. And when I see how they portrayed Scotty as almost being a sore loser because, you know, he signed this contract when he came out and he was the most underpaid players probably in the history of, of players, you know, in the NFL, NBA, NHL, whatever, Major League Baseball, that kind of irks me because especially when all these players were getting huge contracts, huge endorsement deals – you know, and he was stuck on a, with a really bad contract when they were talking about him getting the surgery. And Michael kind of called him out and said, hey, you know, Scotty was wrong for that. Dude, mm-hmm. you were wrong for going out and gambling and having to, you know, leave the, the NBA and leave your teammates to go and, you know, chase after your dream of being a minor league baseball player. You know, maybe you shouldn't have racked up so much gambling debt that, you know, that the NBA had a slap you on the wrist or, or whatever happened there. You know, I just think that it really did portray Scotty in a bad light. And I've seen Scotty out in public. You know, he lives down here. I've seen him out in public at some events and everything. And he's, I've never had a conversation with him. I've never, you know, I don't know him personally. But he's, he, every time I've seen him, he seems very affable and very approachable and very nice. He's always working with charities or doing whatever. So he seems like a really nice guy. But, you know, listen, everybody's got their a, a right to go out and earn their living. You know, and it was stated a couple of times in the documentary that, you know, the owner of the boat, Jerry Reinsdorf, said, you know, I give you your contract. That's it. I don't want to ever hear from you again. If they're not winning championships, they're not making all that money that they made. Yeah. I guess I can understand where Jordan was coming from on this just for this reason. Really, if you look at what Michael Jordan made from the Bulls, he was really underpaid. Because he made so much money from his endorsements with Nike and Gatorade and Hanes Underwear and who else. He wasn't paid as one of the top guys like a, a Magic Johnson was during his career. So I think Jordan, being as competitive as he is, and is kind of like, well, hey, you know, I kind of went through all this. And it wasn't until like the last few years of his career where Jordan signed like these one-year deals and he was getting paid a ton of money, but rightfully so because – they were selling out the building because of Michael Jordan and making money off of his endorsements and stuff. So I think Jordan probably had that kind of mindset in making that comment with, with Scotty. And, but to Scotty's point, he was on the, the documentary and said, look, you know, he signed that long-term contract because he came from central Arkansas where you know, a very poor family uh, definitely needed the money. And he was thinking of security and, it was just bad luck that he signed a long-term deal. And then all of a sudden the salaries go way up, but you know what? That, I don't know that that happens today, Ronnie, because it, now you hear all this stuff about, and you see all this stuff where NFL guys, NBA guys, it's like they may have two or three years on their contract. They'll just sit out. And it's like, you gotta, 
you got to make a good contract by this guy or else he's going to hold out or demand a trade or it's just a different day. Well, nothing, nothing ever stays the same, especially in business. You know, that's the difference between the players in the eighties and the nineties. And now it's that now, and I think that it's kind of evolved too, where the players have their own voice because of social media. You know, the players have got even a role player, you know, the last guy off the bench has got a million followers on social media. So they have a voice. And, and, if, and if they start saying things and start leveraging their platforms, people are going to hear them and they're going to understand or see things their way because they control the narrative. Whereas back then, the owners control the narrative because they're the ones that allowed the press into the stadium. They're the ones that allowed the press into the locker room, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, it's completely different now than what it was back then. You know, it's always interesting when you talk about negotiation of player salaries, too, because the players will, in any sport, they'll, they'll point the finger and say, well, look, you know, these owners are making millions of dollars off of us. They're selling jerseys. I mean, it's even worse when you talk about college sports, but that's that's for another podcast because that, that could go on for a long time. But the LeBron James out there, the Michael Jordans, they're like, hey, you know, Chicago Bulls, you're selling out because people are coming to see me. They're buying the Michael Jordan jerseys and stuff, and so I should be paid more. But yet, the guy that is the really good role player that's, let's say, a Horace Grant, you know what, a very important player. If you don't have that good power forward, you're not winning titles. So Draymond Green was another one. And it's it's interesting when they have this debate because it's like, you know, you want your guys to be paid well, but yet – you know, the owners are going to take the position, hey, I've got to make money too. I'm the one taking the risk here. You could get hurt. Well, well, not only that, but let's talk about risk. You know, the owners right now, think about what's going on now. The owners are taking a bath because they've got all these expenses, fixed expenses with stadiums and and everything else. They're not getting any revenue. They're not getting concession. They're not getting ticket sales. They're not getting their endorsement deals, they're not getting their advertising sales. They're not getting anything, right? That's why like we're seeing it with the baseball teams now. This is going to be interesting what's going to happen with baseball and even NBA saying that they're going to go back to play in Orlando or Texas or something to go in and play like a round-robin tournament to determine who the champions are of the league for this season. Like just give it up at this point. It's June. They'll come back next year. They've almost got to try something just because at the end of the day, they need revenue. I mean, if even if the NBA, like they're they're going to come to Orlando here and play and stuff, but at the end of the day, like those TV contracts that they have with TNT and you know everywhere else, I guess they're not getting paid if they're not playing games. I guess I don't know what their contracts say, but you know, even if you don't have fans there, if you get the stream of revenue from TV contracts, that's huge. Yeah. Look, if the players were smart, you know, this we're getting a little bit off topic, but the players are smart. They would go and set up like their own three-on-three games and and uh, and and do it through pay-per-view and charge you know a dollar a viewer to watch a game. Players would crush it. Are you kidding me? You put six players, put put together you know twelve players, and they go and they play a, a three-on-three game. You know, and they rotate the players in and out. You mean to tell me that they're not going to get with, with how sports deprived we are right now? They're not going to get ten million people to watch the game, and they and they won't get you know. $10 million to split, split up each weekend between 12 players. Got to be kidding me. I'm surprised that, Le- that Le- LeBron hasn't hasn't thought about that yet. Yeah, I'll tell you why LeBron hasn't done that, because the smart lawyers for the NBA teams put clauses in contracts that don't allow that. Oh, well. 
here's the flip side to that. Hey, NBA, you guys aren't paying me right now, so I guess my contract doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I think they're getting a stipend. But anyway, hopefully it'll be back soon. But back to the, the Bulls here. One important uh, piece of the puzzle to those late Bulls teams was Dennis Rodman. We talked about Rodman a little bit with the Pistons. Of course, my favorite part of this documentary was Carmen Electra being on there several times. So, you know, if, if we didn't have Dennis Rodman, we wouldn't have Carmen Electra on this documentary. So kudos to Dennis Rodman. But Rodman is a guy that is kind of misunderstood, I think, because, you know, he got wild and crazy and stuff. But say what you want about Dennis Rodman, but he performed on the court. Tremendous rebounder, tremendous defender. When they lost Horace Grant, they needed this power forward, this guy to be a defensive stopper down there, and and he delivered. So talk about your thoughts about Dennis Rodman on this documentary. Man, I first of all, I love Dennis Rodman as a personality, right? There's, there's so many – he's very, very interesting. And, of course, I love the fact that Carmen Electra, you know, made a couple of appearances. I loved when she was telling the story about how they were trying to find Dennis in the hotel room and they were banging on the door and they came in and she had to hide under the covers. I just thought that was hysterical. Yeah, is Jordan doing that. Yeah. You know, and I just think that he's such a an intriguing guy. I mean, uh, you know, definitely marches to the beat of his own drummer. You know, multi-time NBA champion, hangs out with the leader of – uh, you know, Kim Jong-un, you know, he's just, there's so many memes about him. He's like the anti-hero, you know, in every story, every movie, and this goes back to filmmaking and making good uh, entertainment on video, you know, you've got to have that conflict character. We have to have the character that's either you hate him one minute, but you love him the next, or you love to hate him. You know, you look at every TV show, look at every movie, you always have that conflict character. And that's what he was on the Bulls. He was that conflict character. Well, Right. And I think the thing is, too, still in that era of the late 90s, it was still a very physical brand of basketball. I mean, those Knicks heat rivalries were brutal. I mean, that's when the heat team had Tim Hardaway, Alonzo Mourning, Jamal Mashburn, Dan Marley, Vishon Leonard. Riley was the coach for the heat at that time. I mean, very physical brand of basketball. And when the Bulls lost Horace Grant, they just didn't have that physical presence down low because, you know, Luke Longley really wasn't that great of a center. He was a serviceable center, which is all they kind of needed for the Bulls just to kind of get out of Jordan's way. But you still had to have that great power forward because of so many good big guys in the East with like Ewing and Alonzo Mourning. You still had Elijah one. The thing I think with Dennis Rodman and the Bulls is outside of Jordan, I would make an argument that he was as important as Scottie Pippen as the number two option. And I say that because you know, in the 98 season when the Bulls didn't have Pippen and he was sitting out, they weren't as good. But when Rodman was involved and they got him involved more in the game, they started winning and they were in a pretty good position when Scottie Pippen came back. And then when Pippen came back, then Dennis had a lesser role. And so he, you know, his mood was, he wasn't as engaged. But the thing is, when they played those Heat teams, he would get Alonzo Mourning so frustrated that Alonzo was completely out of his game. He'd pick up silly fouls, and Alonzo couldn't control his emotions at that stage of his career. And to me, that's a big reason why those Heat teams never rose to the championship level, because Oakley would do the same to Alonzo Mourning. But going back to my point with Jordan, because I was rooting for those Heat teams, and it was like, man, you know, if Sean Leonard or Marley, if they breathed on Jordan – 
they would call a foul. It was so ridiculous. I mean, and, and I was like, this is just blatant officiating to to benefit Jordan because if you give Jordan an inch, he's going to take a mile. But um, one other guy I want to talk about, you know, other than um, Rodman, who is to me, you know, so critical, and that's the head coach Phil Jackson. You know, I, I felt that Phil was such a great leader and a manager of personalities on that team that, you know, if you had another coach, maybe you don't win with that team. What, what's your take on Phil Jackson and his legacy? Well, first of all, a little background on Phil that I learned about through the documentary is that I think he's from like North Dakota or something, went to North Dakota State or one of those colleges, I mean, almost in Canada, right? And then, you know, goes and plays for the Knicks and then uh, and then the Nets. And then he ends up coaching in Puerto Rico. And he really credited his time coaching in Puerto Rico as being the most important time of his development as a coach. And then he went and goes and interviews with Jerry and, and them the first time. And they, they take a pass. And then they interview the second time. And then he comes on as an assistant. And it was really him learning from oh I forget the name of the coach the old timer that that really created the triangle offense that's weird exactly you know and him adapting that is really the key to him being the legend that he is now you know and Doug Collins was I guess was a good coach but he couldn't get him over the hump you know it was it was Phil Jackson was the one that was open and knew how to deal with the personalities and knew how to get the most and knew how to coach them the right way that got them to where they needed to be which was you know, winning all the championships. So, yeah, I mean, Jordan, just like you said, you know, Jordan was a great player, but they need to bring in players around him to get him to the next level. And not only did they have to bring in all these players, but they had to bring in the coach. And the, and Phil Jackson was probably at that time the perfect coach for that team. And I think that with Phil Jackson, you know, as you see in the documentary, you had some very strong and different personalities on that team that had to be managed. And part of the job as a coach is besides the X's and O's is to manage the personalities of the team so that this unit can work together. And so you have a guy like Jordan that, I mean, frankly, watching all this stuff, Jordan really wasn't that great of a teammate. He was brutal on um, some of the lower guys, which part of it is, and and a lot of perfectionists deal with this. Um, It's like, they expect everyone else to be at their level and it's hard for them to accept when some people aren't, or maybe from an effort standpoint, but like, you know, you hear the stuff about Jordan giving Cartwright a bunch of things about, um, you know, a lot of crap and stuff. Cause he wasn't too thrilled about Cartwright coming over. Cause his friend Oakley got traded from the bulls to the Knicks, but he was like, he called a medical bill and stuff. And I'm like sitting here, you know, why are you doing that to a guy that you need on your team? You need this guy to buy in to you. So, you know, I don't think Jordan was that great of a teammate, but yet Jordan was so demanding on things. You had to have a strong leader like Phil Jackson to say, hey, Jordan, when you're out of line, when you punch Steve Kerr in the face, you're kicked out of practice because if you let Jordan just run the team, he has no respect for the coach, and that's a problem. And I felt with Phil as well, you know, he had to deal with the issue with Scotty not wanting to go into that playoff game, and he allowed the veteran like Bill Cartwright to – you know, say, hey, that's unacceptable. And and Phil was like, hey, if he's not coming in, screw him. We're, we're going to do this play. And Tony Kukoc hits that shot. But also to deal with a guy like Rodman. I mean, it was funny, the stories about, you know, Rodman, going back to Carmen Electra, said, 
he just went to Phil Jackson and said he needed a vacation, like right in the middle of the season. And he had a he had 48 hours to go to Las Vegas and release. And that's when he wasn't back and Jordan got on the plane and went back and dragged him out of the hotel room with Carmen Electra. And Is that one of the best stories ever, though? Well, it, that just goes to show how you've got to know your personnel. And this applies whether it's basketball or you're working at a law firm or a business or whatever. And Phil was a master at being able to do that. And he did the same with Kobe and Shaq and the Lakers. You know, you've got to be able to manage those personalities to get the best out of them. So I I think if I was picking a coach to run an organization, it, it would be Phil Jackson just because he was just so great with X's and O's, but also the um, the mentality. Now, kind of closing up on this with the last dance, the reason why it's called the last dance, as I mentioned earlier, they just the management for the Bulls, Jerry Krause and owner Jerry Reinsdorf, they just didn't want to bring back Phil Jackson. To me, isn't it crazy to not want to bring back a championship team and to announce that at the beginning of the year? Makes no sense whatsoever because it's it's like having – it's like a, 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 when we elect a new president and in between the election and inauguration, that's called you know the lame duck president because he has no power. Same thing with, you know, with, with that. You know, you, you let everybody know the coach, this the coaches last year. Well, uh, if somebody doesn't like the coach, they just go and do their own thing and wait until the following year. You know, it was strange. I can't see that happening in business. I can't see it happen in any other sports. You know, maybe towards the end of a season, you know, if somebody was retiring, you know, we've seen that happen with a lot of icons, um, but not where management says, yeah, this is going to be his last year. We're going to move on after this year with him. I, I just thought it was such a. Uh a poor decision to make because I mean, it's not like Michael Jordan doesn't get enough questions from the press as it is, but that team had so much extra pressure from dealing with those kind of questions the whole year. So it was another diversion from the very difficult task of trying to win an NBA championship. I just thought it was absolutely crazy, but you know, they were able to put it together. uh, And you know, that last year was such a crazy year because of the Scottie Pippen situation. Hold um, he was took off time for that surgery, and he missed several games before coming back. So Rodman had to step up. But you had guys step up their game too, like Tony Kukoc, who really – I felt bad for Tony Kukoc in this because when he first came to the Bulls, you know, Jerry Krause, the GM, had been talking up how great this Tony Kukoc was, and Jordan and Pippen took offense to it because they're like, hey, you know, we're great players too, and you're, you're talking about this other guy. So they just dogged him in the – the Olympics, you know, you had other guys step up. Uh, winning, Bill Winnington was important. Uh, Longley hit a few shots, but guys like Steve Kerr stepped up. And then when Scotty came back, you know, they, they were, they were rolling. I will say this though. I was a big Utah jazz fan. I love John Stockton Malone. So I was so upset the way the championship was won where Jordan, he says that it wasn't a push off Brian Russell to hit that last shot, but I don't know. I just felt like that was another series where Jordan's getting so many calls. Yep, exactly. Well, listen, it, you know, it, it is what it is, you know. Yeah, it is what it is, I guess. But even so, you know, that was the series where he had the – whether it was the flu or food poisoning or whatever it might be, to score 55 points when he's not 100%. That was amazing. But they capped it off, and that's how that Bulls dynasty went out. So – Kind of closing up on uh, the Bulls before we go into our great discussion of players. Talk about your final takeaways from uh, the documentary, The Last Dance. I think 
that this was more, I've said it before, this is more an homage to the great Michael Jordan. It was Jordan first, then about the Bulls, and then about the other players, right? Because it just tried to cast Michael Jordan as being, you know, this great thing. We We didn't talk too much about Jerry Krause. Jerry Krause built a great team, but he was a real, you know, idiot. Definitely has no people skills and just didn't didn't have a bedside manner. The, one of the things that I loved about the documentary that I thought was amazing was the way that they used music to really put you mentally, you know, if you grew up during that time period, it put you mentally back into, the, you know, that mindset during that time. You know, in the opening, in the first episode, they played Eric B. I Ain't No Joke, which was a huge hip hop anthem, especially in New York in the, you know, 84, 85, had that powerful beat. And then they went, you know, it, then they, in the next episode, they played a little Run DMC, some LL Cool J, a little Tribe Called Quest, and some other episodes. I got, they, I mean, they played some really, really amazing hip hop, which, of course, the same way that the NBA and the Bulls really exploded during the mid-80s through the 90s, we saw hip-hop explode. And they really used some huge anthems from hip-hop, but not the most commercially popular songs, but songs that when people make up a list of, okay, these are the these are songs that are very influential, that have a, a, a huge story to tell, the story behind the music, the songs that they use. I mean, they even use Cool Mo D. You know, you have to be a real hip-hop afrikando I'm making up words as I go along. Don't stop me now. They use some of the best hip-hop songs that a lot of people don't know about to really set the tone in each episode. And that is, I've, I've listened to a lot of documentaries. I've talked to a lot of people about this documentary. Nobody has really said it. In fact, I watched a couple of the episodes yesterday and today just to kind of refresh myself because I was watching them while they were on and I was paying attention to it. But, you know, of course, I'm on my phone. I'm doing my emails for the week. It's on a Sunday night, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until I rewatched it. I said, wow, that was really, really good production work. And somebody knew what they were doing when they used these songs that were relevant to that to that time period. You know, I don't know if, if you picked up on that or if the average viewer would pick up on it and the meaning behind the songs and when the songs came out and who the artists were. But music, just like in all video production, whether you're watching a movie, TV, whatever, music is, it's like that character, that character actor that you see in every film. And you don't know what the character's actor name is, but when you see the character actor, you're like, oh, I love that guy or I love that girl. She's awesome. You know, that's how music is in, in all video production. That was one of the best things about this entire production. I think one thing I forgot to mention in the podcast that I, that I really liked about it, besides Carmen Electra, I thought the documentary did a really good job of bringing in Michael's mom and talking about his relationship with his parents, especially with his dad who was murdered. And I, I, I thought that was very important because it showed, you know what, Michael Jordan had a really good upbringing with parents who really cared about him. They wanted uh, they did the best they could for him. I mean, they were, they were just regular blue-collar workers, just like a lot of us grew up in. And so I thought that was great in showing how like his brothers were so influential with him as far as the competition goes. And that, you know, regardless of whether you're a fan of Michael Jordan or not, his work ethic was second to none. And I mean, one of the greatest competitors ever, besides being uh, one of the greatest basketball players ever. But ultimately, he got to where he was through hard work. And 
Yes, you know, I complained about, hey, got some calls and stuff like that. But you get calls when you're when you're a star, when you're the best. Because, hey, Larry Bird got calls and Kobe got calls and, you know, your stars get calls. So it, it just it is what it is. But I, I did like showing the parents being involved there. I thought that was a good touch. Yeah, that was, was well done. I mean, the whole documentary was well done. And it also has created a lot of conversation about different things right now, sports related, growing up, so many different conversations have come up uh, about due to this documentary, especially in the in the absence of normal competitive sport programming on TV. Right. No, it was a huge hit. Um, really enjoyed it. And I will say to ESPN, they've done a really good job in all of these documentaries that they've done, whether it be over with the Pistons or Ric Flair or whatever. I mean, from the fans' perspective, we always like to hear what happens beside the behind the, uh, the curtain. So, well, anyway, let's transition now because one of the things that The Last Dance has sparked is a constant debate as to who is the greatest player of all time. But before we get to that analysis, because Michael Jordan is definitely in there, I kind of want to do a breakdown of like if you're picking your all-star teams for each decade since we've really been following, which starting with 80s, who would you pick? So I'm going to give off my picks, and you can critique me and, of course, throw in your picks, Ronnie. So in the 80s, there were so many good players. I did my all-star teams based on an Eastern Conference team and a Western Conference team. And then what I did is I would have uh, two point guards, uh, or two players at every position. So in the 80s, starting at the point guard position, I'm going with the bad boy, Isaiah Thomas. And the second point guard I'm going to pick is Dennis Johnson from the Boston Celtics. Oh, wow. Wow. Way back in that one. Okay. Now, this is, just, this is just teams from the 80s, though. So I'm just looking at what they did in the 80s. This isn't like my all-time team. All right, so in the 80s, I got Isaiah Thomas and Dennis Johnson as my point guards from the East. Shooting guards are obviously Michael Jordan as my starter. I'm going with Dr. J as my second shooting guard. My um, small forwards, I'm going with Larry Bird and Charles Barkley. My power forward, um, I'm going with Kevin McHale. And I'm using Bill Lambeer as a power forward because he's really a 6'11 center, but I want Bill Lambeer on this team. And then for my centers from the 80s, I'm going with Moses Malone, who is a guy who led the 76ers to that 83 championship and a guy that I feel like is often overlooked when they talk about the greatest of all time, and Patrick Ewing. And then I had two other spots, and I picked Dominique Wilkins uh, to be a small forward shooting guard kind of combination because I still to this day think Dominique Wilkins got robbed in that 1988 dunk contest at the All-Star game by Michael Jordan. I mean, he clearly beat Jordan in that dunk contest, but at the end of the day, it was in Chicago and they wanted Jordan to win. So Jordan, I still have ill feelings. And I'm putting Dennis Rodman on the team because I, uh, one of these guys is just such a critical part of the team. Maybe he's, he may not have been one of the 12 best guys from the East in that period. But I think he's very important. So, and my West team, obviously your point guard is Magic Johnson there. I don't have John Stockton in the 80s because he didn't really start picking up until like 88, 89. So I'm going to have him in the, in the 90s. But uh, I go with Lafayette Fat Lever as my second point guard for the 80s. My shooting guard, I'm going with a Clyde Drexler and also George Gervin from the Spurs. 
I mean, Gervin's the guy that, you know, for a lot of the younger listeners out there, they may not remember him, but man, that guy was a tremendous scorer in the 70s and, and early 80s. Small forwards, I'm going with James Worthy from the Lakers and Alex English from the uh, Denver Nuggets. Power forward, I'm going Carl Malone and Tom Chambers, which some may not remember Tom Chambers, but that guy was a stud with the Seattle Supersonics and later the Phoenix Suns. The centers, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Akeem Olajuwon. And my miscellaneous guys, I'm going with Chris Mullen. Yeah, maybe. Yep. Sweet shooter for the Golden State Warriors at that time. Big time score. And a guy named Alvin Robertson. I don't know if you remember him. He was a guy who came in in the mid-80s. Uh, he played Arkansas, and he was on that 84 Olympic team too, but a great defensive guy, consistently led the, uh, the league in steals. So those were my teams. And as far as my um, – lineups go uh obviously in the in the east i mean if my starters are magic johnson clyde drexler james worthy carl malone and uh kareem there but uh, i love george gervin coming off that bench but uh for the east i have a unique lineup here because of the tension between michael jordan and isaiah i am not starting isaiah thomas on that 80s team i'm actually starting dennis johnson as the point guard then i have michael jordan Dr. J, Larry Bird, and Moses Malone. And then on bench, I have Isaiah Thomas, Dominique Wilkins, Charles Barkley, Kevin McHale, and Patrick Ewing. And my subs are Rodman and Lambeer. So any major complaints with any of those picks? I didn't break down my list. Your list is pretty comprehensive. I didn't break down my list as quite as succinctly as you have. But I'm surprised that you didn't have Ralph Sampson on your list. I didn't because Ralph Sampson, and he had basically about three or four good years. And I guess you could argue and say, well, maybe he should be on there. But I thought Tom Chambers was more consistent, and definitely Carl Malone was. And Sampson's a guy, if he didn't have leg injuries, he's like a what what would have happened kind of guy. But if you're talking about college, though, he's definitely on the list because he was the man. Yeah. Well, I I tell you what, my list wasn't more so – you're more – you can tell just by our voices uh, and our personalities. You're more analytical and I'm more emotional. So I'm going off of, you know, who had the greatest impact during their time. So I've got Samson on there. Of course, I've got MJ. I have Bird. I've got Moses, right? I have Kareem, Magic. I even have Ewing, even though Ewing really didn't start to become a huge force until the 90s. But, you know, he got drafted in the, the – what was it, 85 or 86 he was drafted by the Knicks? Well, he's, he always averaged over 20 points a game and over 10 rebounds. So he- I had I had Lambeer in there. I didn't, again, I'm not a fan of Isaiah Thomas. I didn't have Isaiah Thomas on there just because I'm just not a fan of him. I don't think that he is one of the greatest players because I don't believe that he's a player's player. I don't think that other players would really say that they love playing with him, you know? And maybe that's why he was a good fit in Detroit, because Detroit just had this cast of characters that, as a, the whole, the sum was greater than the parts. I had um, Matumbo. Was Matumbo was playing during the 80s, no? 90s. 90s. Okay, so he's on my 90s list. I had Elijah Wan, and I had Dominique Wilkins. Those were like the players, again, don't forget, during the 80s, I wasn't as much watching basketball, professional basketball, as much as we were during the 90s, you know? Yeah. Oh, those are all, all good picks. Mm-hmm. So, all right, well, transitioning into the 90s, I went with a few different guys. I mean, of course, 
for my East team, Jordan is still my shooting guard. I still put Isaiah Thomas on the point guard list for the 90s, but there's a guy who is my second point guard that I feel like is another guy, also a, a, a former Philadelphia 76er, who I think gets forgotten in a lot of the discussions about greatest players of all time, and that's Allen Iverson. That guy was great. And, and, and it's what's funny is he's known more for the bad press that he got and for his line about going to practice, you know, than, than he was for what he did on the court. He is one of the most underrated players, athletes. You know, before, the, before Michael Vick, I think AI was like the original Michael Vick. It's just that instead of him choosing to go pursue football in college, he, he wanted to go play professional basketball, you know? Yeah. Well, the other thing with Allen Iverson is, I mean, he was a shorter guy. They had him listed at six feet tall. He was really more like 5'10", 5'11". But, I mean, he's just a great, great player. I mean, you, if you look at Allen Iverson's stats, I mean, he was always a big-time scorer. So he definitely should be on that 90s team. So I mentioned uh, Michael Jordan. The backup uh, shooting guard would be Reggie Miller. Reggie Miller is a player that either you love him or you hate him. You know, big-time player. Small forward, Scottie Pippen. Still go with Dominique Wilkins there. He still had a good enough numbers in the 90s. My power forwards, I went with Charles Oakley and Rodman. My centers were Ewing and Alonzo Mourning. My reserves on that team, I have Joe Dumars, the, the nice guy on the bad boys team. I always liked him. And then just from a team perspective, I really liked Dale and Antonio Davis, the Davis twins uh, from the Indiana Pacers. Just tough, hard-nosed guys. I, I thought they'd be a good addition to the team. Even so, another guy I want to mention from the 90s is uh, Grant Hill. I mean, just a tremendous player coming in, could do everything. So he was really talented. I thought about putting Penny Hardaway on that team, but I picked Allen Iverson over him. I also want to mention uh, Mark Jackson and, uh, and Tim Hardaway. Great, great players. If I'm building a team, though, I really like Mark Jackson because – Tim Hardaway, as good of a ball player as he was, and he could shoot, he could score, you know, tremendous player for the Heat. Sometimes I feel like on these teams, when you've got so many alpha players, you've got to have somebody that's okay not scoring the basketball. And a lot of times that comes to the point guard position to be that distributor and that leader. And I always felt Mark Jackson did a good job with that. So that was my East team, the West team. I had uh, my point guards are John Stockton and Gary Payton. My shooting guards are Clyde Drexler and a guy named Mitch Richmond that a lot of people forget, but big-time scorer. He was on those Mullen and Hardaway teams with Golden State. My small forward is Charles Barkley. I have Latrell Sprewell on that team. Oh, wow. Choked out. Uh, what's his name? P.J. Carlissimo. But he was also a heck of a player. My power forwards were Carl Malone and Sean Kemp because – I don't have Tim Duncan on the 90s team yet because he was uh, drafted a little bit later. And then my centers were Akeem, David Robinson, and, of course, Shaq. Tim Duncan's an honorable mention there because as soon as he got drafted in 97, I mean, that guy was a stud. Another guy I want to mention in the West who was a really good player, two guys actually, Detlef Shrimp, the Dunking Dutchman from the Seattle Supersonics. And I always liked Jeff Hornacek, who was a really good shooting guard with the Phoenix Suns and then was on those Stockton Malone teams in Utah that battled Jordan. So what, what's your take on the top 90s guys? So again, you know, I didn't separate it by position or by East and West. I'm going to tell you who, who I, who, you know, as a, as a fan, who I enjoyed watching and who I think, you know, when you, when you start going through lists or naming lists of players from the 90s, 
I'm going to start with New York. You know, John Starks, Patrick Ewing. There you go. That's a lot of love. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dennis Rodman, of course. Allen Iverson, Shaq, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Carl Malone. I got to put the Admiral, you know, David Robinson. I got to put him in there. I put him on mine. Yep. Uh, Reggie Miller. I got to put on there too, uh, Dan Marley. Yeah, and he's a good player. I don't know that I'd put him on higher than some of those other guys, but he was clutch and, you know, big time three point shooter. Yep, yep. What about uh, Gary Payton? Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, uh, Reggie Miller. You know, Reggie Miller, it's a whole nother. Uh, conversation. We, you know, we could talk about Reggie Miller and the and the Knicks and 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 the battle with uh, Spike Lee and everything else. And I would have to put Charles Barkley on that list as well. Yep, I had Charles Barkley down. Yep, Charles won the '93 MVP with Phoenix, and you know, really on those Olympic teams, he always led them in scoring and rebounding. I did hate to hear though uh, on the documentary. That you know, Charles has been with TNT for a long time as an analyst and does a really good job. And I think the reason why Charles Barkley relates to a lot of people is because whether you like Charles Barkley or not, he gives his opinion. I think he gives he's a straight shooter. But you know, one of the things with Jordan is he has not really been a successful executive as far as putting winning products on the on the court with the Washington Wizards and Charlotte. I think in all of his years of owning the the Charlotte Bobcats slash Hornets, they only made the playoffs once. I mean, they, you know, he is given big contracts to guys like Bismack Biombo and who clearly did not deserve it, but he hasn't had the success as an executive on the, from the wins and losses that he did as a player. And Barkley made the comment and said, you know, Michael's not doing a great job for X, Y, and Z. Well, of course, Jordan hears it. He gets offended by it. And so he's cut off Charles Barkley. They don't even talk anymore. And Barkley's just making a point. And Barkley's like, well, hey, Michael has a problem with his leadership because he has a bunch of yes men and yes women who they just tell Michael what he wants to hear. And sometimes you need to have somebody that says, hey, look, you know, you're not right on this. Let's do it another way or consider a different perspective. And Michael didn't want to hear it. And so he's cut off Charles Barkley. And I hate to hear that. Well, listen, and that's, I think that that is a trait of a perfectionist is that they want to be, you know, and that that control freaks, you know, they want to be right and they they want to, they don't want to hear the truth. The truth sometimes proves that they're wrong, right? Just like Jack Nicholson said in the movie. Yeah. Can't handle the truth. No, you can't, man. I think overall, we have to look at these, any list that's going to name the top players, it's hard to name overall the top players because a player that's good right now no so i think that players continually get better and better and better or is it, or is it the other way because i think some of the players that are good now especially in the nba they would not have been good in the 60s 70s and 80s because the rules have changed you know they, they, they the game was a lot more physical than then than it is now now if you just you know touch the player's jersey you know, as they're driving the lane, you're getting called for a foul. Back then, you wanted to drive the lane, you were getting hacked and you were getting bumped and, you know, you weren't coming down. They weren't clearing a path for you to come down. You know, they were going to make sure you were coming down hard. And a lot of players today probably would have had a hard time playing back then and, and vice versa. And that's the debate that a lot of people have when they get into what we'll get into later about, hey, is LeBron better than Jordan? Is Steph Curry an all-time great player? What about Kevin Durant? Or, or James Harden, you know, if they're playing in the 80s and 90s, could they deal with the physicality? I guess my argument to that is this. In today's system, 
Steph Curry would be put to the ground a whole lot more than he is now. And he'd be put down hard because if you think about some of the point guards, I mean, you had guys like Derek Harper, big physical guards. I mean, you'd put, they'd put a guy like Pippen or Jordan or somebody on that. Mark Jackson was a pretty big guy. They just wouldn't allow somebody to go out there and keep shooting. I mean, James Harden, you know, is constantly throwing his arms up uh, underneath someone to draw a foul. I mean, if he was playing in the eighties and nineties, somebody would put him down hard, but on the flip side, I would argue and say, look, if you're a really, really great player, you adjust to the situation. And so I feel like a guy like Kevin Garnett or Kobe Bryant or some of these just great, great players, they'd be great in any era because they would adjust. That's sort of my my take on it. That being said, that, that makes it hard to say, well, who's better? You know, is Oscar Robertson better than Steph Curry? I mean – and, and when you haven't seen people, it's just a different style, different mentality. But overall, I think, I think we can agree that Jordan is the best ever. I would vote for Jordan. I would because I feel like that with Jordan, the thing about with Jordan is he came into the league as a, a slasher, a driver. He became a really good jump shooter at the end. And you, you look at Kobe's game, that's what Kobe did. And so I would say I would take Jordan and Kobe over LeBron because I don't feel, and I'm not, I'll get to my top 10 list. Kobe's or uh, LeBron's not even in my top five. So, this whole discussion about whether he's the best or Jordan or whatever, I mean, look, a reasonable person could say LeBron James is the best. They could have their reasons. But I just feel like, and we saw it with the Heat that first year, that when the game's on the line, you got to have a guy who can make a shot. And I don't know that LeBron James is always that guy, but. You look at what Jordan did and Kobe, those guys, Larry Bird, they were going to hit that shot. That's sort of my take on it. But but before we get there, let me just run through a couple of my top guys from the 2000s. Then we'll get to our overall list to try to wrap it up. All right. So in the 2000s, my East All-Stars. I'm still going with Allen Iverson, my point guard, but I'm putting Jason Kidd on that team. My shooting guards are Dwayne Wade and Vince Carter. My small forwards are LeBron James and his friend Paul Pierce. My power forwards are Kevin Garnett from the Celtics. And, and a bit of a surprise, I think, for some people, I'm going with Rasheed Wallace. I thought about Chris Bosh, but I think Bosh is a guy that he put up really good numbers. But I felt, at least on those Heat teams, I kept saying to Chris Bosh, be stronger in there, be tougher. And I just felt that he got pushed around more than what I would want on my team. And Rasheed Wallace wasn't letting anybody push him around. Then my centers were uh, Dwight Howard and Ben Wallace. I'm not a big fan of Dwight Howard, but he he put up some big-time numbers. And when he's focused on blocking and rebounding, he's pretty tough. Another guy I want to mention, Jermaine O'Neal from the Pacers was a really good player, and also Chauncey Billups from the Pistons. Another good guy in the 2000s, too, that – wouldn't make my cut for this team, but uh, Richard Hamilton from the Pistons. My West All-Stars, my point guards were Steve Nash and Chris Paul. Shooting guard is uh, Kobe Bryant, but I'm also putting Ray Allen on that team in the West as a Seattle Sonic. Of course, he was a key contributor for the Heat in those championship teams. Carmelo Anthony is my small forward along with Dirk Nowitzki. My power forwards, Tim Duncan and Amari Stoudemire. And my centers were Shaq and Paul Gasol with special mention to uh, Chris Webber. Baron Davis and Kevin Durant. Okay. So I've got a lot of those names on there. I got Vince Carter, right? I have LeBron. 
I got Ginobili on there. I think Ginobili was uh, was a, a really good player for for a long time. Uh, ben Wallace. I got Melo on there. D Wade. I mean, you got to throw D Wade on there, no? Yep, I put him on mine. Okay, Paul Pierce, Shaq. Uh, Shaq was still a force. I got Yao Ming too. Yao Ming was pretty essential. Not only, I mean, he was steady player, but I think he also, from an international standpoint, it really opened up the game to spread internationally. And then I thought Marcus can be on there. Oh, really? Wow. That I get as a defensive guy, though. Yeah, he was top notch. I, I guess. Hey, if you want him as a defensive anchor, he's a pretty solid one in there. Yeah, and what about my last one I got would be Stefan Marbury. Yeah, yeah, he was a good one. I I don't know that I would take him over Jason Kidd or Nash or Paul, but he did put up numbers. Oh, I forgot about Jason Kidd. I really like Jason Kidd as a player. Yeah. I know you named him, but I got to name him as Jesus Shuttlesworth. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he got game. Yeah. Hey, he, that was a good movie. So, and as far as my teams for um, the most recent decade, I mean, as far as point guard, and I didn't do an East and a West. I just kind of did an overall because these guys have switched so much. But um, point guard, I mean, I'm putting Steph Curry in there, and I'm going with Russell Westbrook. Uh, as my shooting guard, I'm going with James Harden at that position and uh, Clay Thompson. I really like Clay Thompson. Small forward, obviously, I'm going with LeBron there. I'm sorry. And also, um, on my shooting guard, I'm going with a Kobe in that period. Small forward, I'm going with LeBron and KD. My power forward, um, I'm trying to think what I did with my power forward. I mean, as far as my bigs go, I'm putting a Giannis in there and, and still Dirk Nowitzki. And centers, you know, we really just don't have centers anymore. I mean, we have some, but they're not really stars. So I'm probably just going to go with some more big guys. And, uh, you know, I always liked, um, as much as I dislike this guy for his antics, he is an important, important player. Um, I, I I would give consideration to Draymond Green, just because he's very, very skilled. But it, I don't know if I would want him on my team. And I still put Tim Duncan on that team. Gosh, there was one other player I forgot. I guess that's good enough for now. But, I mean, those are the guys. I mean, really, this has been a kind of a – domination this period from a LeBron and, uh, you know, Steph Curry, the Splash Brothers. So so LeBron, LeBron's another one of those players. Tremendous talent. I mean, guy's seven foot, whatever. You know, he's won championships now with the Heat and with Cleveland. And, uh, and he's – I don't know if I can consider him in the top five of players all time. Okay, so if we're going all time, well, here's my top 12 of all time. Just for discussion. In no particular order. If I'm going point guards, I'm going Magic Johnson and Oscar Robertson. So that's two. Shooting guards, I'm going Michael Jordan and Kobe. Small forwards, I'm going Larry Bird and LeBron. Power forward, I'm going Tim Duncan and and Carl Malone. I I just really like Carl Malone. Centers, I picked multiple. I think Kareem would be my first pick. I pick Wilt Chamberlain. I pick Shaq, and I really like Akeem Olajuwon. And another guy for small forward shooting guard that I don't want to forget is Jerry West. Now, one guy that is always considered in this discussion is Bill Russell. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see Bill Russell play. I mean, I know his tremendous championship winner with the Celtics helped 
you know, with Bob Cousy and they have a check and win all those titles. I think 11 titles with the Celtics, you know, Moses Malone was a great, great player. I think Iverson should be considered, but I don't know that Bill Russell makes my top 10 list because when I looked at his stats, he was only like a 42 to 44% field goal percentage shooter as a center. Now he averaged 15 to 17 points a game and he got 22 rebounds a game. So tremendous defensive guy, but I'm like, do I have a guy who shoots that low of a percentage on offense over a guy like Kareem and Shaq and Wilt Chamberlain? Because I think a lot of times Shaq may be undervalued in the scope of his career because, yes, he was a big physical guy and was so dominant, but he was a tremendous passer as well. So, and But when I talk about my top five, I don't have LeBron in my top five. I, I think I go with Michael Jordan. Uh, Kareem is definitely in there. Mm-hmm. It's hard not to have Magic Johnson in there. I mean, some may debate and say, well, you know, you would take uh, LeBron over Larry Bird because Larry Bird wasn't much of a defensive guy. But Larry Bird wasn't that bad of a defensive guy. He was still a good rebounder, tremendous passer, and a great shooter. So I would rather have Larry Bird over LeBron because of the fact Larry's a knockdown shooter. And if I've got Magic already on my team, I've already got a distributor. And I feel like, how do you leave out Will Chamberlain, who they had to change the rules because of him, because of his physical dominance? And still, I don't know if I put LeBron over Oscar Robertson or even Kobe. I would probably take Kobe, like I mentioned earlier. So, But at the end of the day, if I'm my first pick, I'm taking Michael Jordan with that pick. Yeah, for sure. Here's who I've got on my list of the best players ever. Of course, I've got MJ, right? I mean, Jordan's – He's that should be the first – name that comes out of everybody's mouth. I've got Larry Bird. I have Kareem. I've got Magic. I've got Ewing. I have Matumbo, LeBron, Jerry West, Dr. J, Clyde Frazier, Shaq, and Reggie Miller. Now, now the top out of that, the top top, MJ, Kareem, Bird, Magic, and Reggie Miller. I just think – and the reason that I'm putting Reggie Miller in there – is that I think that Reggie Miller is after seeing what he did to the Knicks, he knew how to take over a game. You know, so I didn't. When I say the top five, I didn't go by position. I'm mean, I'll put the best five players out, out on the field, out on the court, and let you know let, let a few of them play out of position. They're still going to kick the crap out of you know anybody else's top five. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't know if Reggie Miller would vote for himself to be on that all-time list. <laughs> but but he was a Nick killer, that's for sure. I think that the thing with LeBron, why I kind of have a problem with um, them saying that he's an automatic number two, it's either him or Michael. You know, I've talked about the fact that for me at the end of the day, it has to be a guy that at the if I need a shot made to win the ball game, whose hands do I want it in? And for that shot, I want it to be Michael Jordan or Larry Bird, or I want Kareem taking that sky hook because you couldn't block it. I mean, I don't know what kind of shooter Oscar Robertson was from the outside, but Jerry West was just unbelievable. Kobe was unbelievable with his shots. I mean, when you go back and watch some of the videos of Kobe and some of the acrobatic shots he hit, it was just amazing. So I I just don't think LeBron even gets to that discussion. Now, that being said, LeBron is a tremendous player, he is a, a freak of nature, six foot eight, 250 pounds, maybe 260 at some point. 
he's a great distributor. And would you say he's better than Magic Johnson? You could make that argument, and and I could I could see that point because he's a better defender than Magic. He uh, was seems to be a better scorer, but yet Magic scored when he needed to, but he didn't always have to score because he had Kareem and Worthy and Byron Scott, so he was a facilitator. So it's really hard to make that call, but I just I definitely wouldn't pick LeBron over Jordan. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So. All right. Well, I promised you I was going to try to get you out of here in an hour and a half, and I lied as usual on this, but <laughs> no, we tried. But anyway, I appreciate you coming on the show, giving your perspective, as always, on things that are relevant in society, which Michael Jordan's last dance is still the most talked about thing right now in this debate over the GOAT. I know when Reggie Miller hears this, he's going to love your pick. He's going to start watching your show for sure. <laughs> so um, before we sign off, tell me more about your shows. I know you always got a lot in the works. I always say that I'm, I'm amazed because I started you know, doing video work uh, on Facebook Live, and I would just go Facebook Live from different locations, and then it evolved into me being a guest host on on the E network and on the beach channel here. And then my, you know, getting picked up by individual networks throughout the country that would just, you know, buy my, me on the red carpet. And then it turned into my own show, which, you know, had its own arc, went from the beach channel to NBC. And now um, I actually am developing a couple of other TV shows and we have a deal with uh, Apple TV. So I'm developing uh, kind of extrapolated what I was doing on my show into an entire network about Miami and uh, we're going to start streaming pretty soon on Apple TV, which is going to be huge because it's going to give more content creators down here in the Southeast Florida market a platform. Because, uh, listen, I'm not, I don't want to do every single show myself. So we're partnering up with other content creators to give them a platform for them to leverage their potential sponsors to get on. So it's pretty cool. I mean, listen, I, if you would have said to me three and a half years ago, Ronnie, you know, within uh, by 2020, we're going to be locked down. You're going to be in your house for three months straight. And by the way, when it's all over, you're going to have a, a deal signed with Apple TV to do a streaming TV channel about Miami. How I said, yeah, okay, great. You must be, you know, keep on drinking your tequila. But uh, it's what happened, and it, it is what it is. You know, I just, I just keep on doing things, keep on having fun, and good things happen. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that. See, that's new developments since I talked to you last. Yeah. Yep. Well, hey, Ronnie, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, you know, devoting some time for talking sports and uh, you know good luck with the show let rodney know if he needs to make a cameo on the show if you need a bulldog <laughs> i love rodney yeah so but anyway uh, thanks so much i appreciate your friendship over the years and to our audience i hope you guys enjoyed this discussion over michael jordan in the last dance and some of the greats of nba basketball and keep following us on the website at www.benandrodney.com and you can follow us on instagram at Ben Wilson, Miami, and of course, follow Ronnie. Ronnie, give him that website and Instagram handle. Yeah, man, you can follow us at definitelymiami.tv. That's the website. You can follow the streaming channel there. And then by July 1st, all you have to do is go to Roku or, or Apple TV, type in the keyword Miami, and we'll be the first thing that'll pop up. And uh, you can always find us online at, at definitelymiamitv on uh, Instagram or at Vibes and Views Miami. All right. Well, hey, thanks, Ronnie, uh, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. And to our listeners, hope you enjoy the show and have a great week. So thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us online at benandrodney.com and follow us on Instagram at benwilsonmiami.com.